Welcome to The Lens with me, Ollie Barrett. My first guest today is Sophie Hebdige. And Sophie is a young entrepreneur. She's starting a new company as we speak called Project Kitchen Table as part of the impact business builder, Zinc. And her mission is to improve the mental health of women and girls all around the world. My second guest is Jacqueline de Rocas, who is the president of Tech UK, the trade association of tech companies in the UK. She also sits on the board of companies including Rightmove and Costain. We're going to be talking about several things today including mental health and whether digital can make our mental health better or whether it simply makes it worse. We're also going to be talking about diversity. How can tech companies in particular become more diverse and why? And what practical steps can teams make to ensure that diversity continues? Finally, we're going to be asking huge questions about artificial intelligence or AI and whether it can or should be responsible. And if it is to be responsible, what can we do to make that happen? Let's get to the conversation. Sophie Hebdige, hello. Hi. Welcome to The Lens, Sophie. You have already completed a Barclays graduate scheme in technology. You've worked for a global tech company where you created a chat bot to teach us about cybersecurity. And now you're working on a very important new mission. And we'll come back to that in a moment. But I need to understand, where did this all begin? And what was your very first job? Yes. So my very first job was actually as a Saturday girl working in a cafe. Uh, And that really just kind of gave me an idea of the world of work. It enabled me to become a lot more self-sufficient as a teenager. And where was that taking place? So that was where I grew up, down in Bournemouth. Yes. A lovely little seaside cafe. Yeah. So I've I've got a picture of that in my mind. Well, you ended up studying mathematics and computer science. So what was it that drew you into that world of technology. Yeah, so uh, this is an interesting one because I didn't actually choose to do computer science. So I didn't actually uh, ever choose technology. I really wanted to study mathematics. Results day came around and I, I didn't get my grades, which was obviously quite upsetting at the time. But I luckily got an email that said, you can still come to university, still come to the University of Bath. Uh, but you have to do computer science and maths. And I took this massive leap of faith, jumped into it and absolutely fell in love with the computer science, hated the maths part. Um, but before that, I'd never really been exposed to computer science. I didn't even really consider it as an option. So really that twist of fate has set me up so well. Completely, and, almost by almost by accident. Yeah. Uh, definitely a twist of fate. And what was it sitting there in the seminar or the lecture theatre, what was it about computer science that got you going? Because for some people, as you know, it's something they never even consider, let alone do. What was it that got you? I think I think it was kind of twofold. I think first of all, it was this fascination with everything that's going on in the world around us. By the time technology reaches uh most of us, it's this kind of cold, hard lump of metal. So I would say computer science, in its essence, is really creative logic. Okay, creative logic. Yeah. Okay, so it is about problem solving, but also creativity. Incredible creativity as well, which I think is often hidden. In terms of the seeds of wanting to make a difference, make the world a better place, had they been sown by then, or did that come a little bit later? So I think think that definitely 
came a little bit later. Something I'd experienced during my studies and during my graduate scheme was that there just were not a lot of women around me. And uh, I really didn't like that. It's just not very nice to be kind of the only person that's like you. I wanted to change that. So I started to teach women how to code through an organisation called Code First Girls. Uh, And that just sparked this passion for education within me. Well, today we're going to be meeting, as you know, Jacqueline de Rojas, who herself is a brilliant role model, has done huge amounts in terms of campaigning around getting more women into STEM. Um, Many people will look at what you've done and are doing and think that you will have had to overcome certain barriers. Um, Have there been barriers in your way? And if so, what have they been? Yeah, so I think, as I've kind of already touched on, being that only woman in the room is, is certainly a barrier. I don't have a good answer for how I've overcome it, aside from the fact that I was so in love with technology that I just didn't let it bother me. And was there a temptation as you were surrounded, let's put it bluntly, by blokes yeah. in the lecture theatre, in the workplace, um, how can I put this, um, to become more like them or to thrive in your own um, personality and in, in, in being you and being individual? Yeah, I think I think it's a it's a mixture of two. You do obviously adapt to your environment. Um but also it, it enabled me to kind of cultivate my own personality, build up my own confidence in who I was uh, and really kind of try and stay true and stick to my guns there. Yeah, and that is exactly what you've done. You've created some extraordinary things already, including uh, a word that all of our listeners will have heard of, which is a chatbot. So my question is, what is a chatbot? How do you create one? And uh, what, what's an example? Because presumably uh, we encounter them without even knowing it sometimes. Yeah, so I describe a chatbot as any technology service that you interact with through a conversation where the person that's responding to you or the thing that's responding to you is not a human being. It's a computer. Got it. Okay. And this whole area of chatbots is something you're exploring right now as part of a programme called Zinc, which describes itself as an impact business builder. So give us a couple of thoughts on Zinc. What is it? And also, what is it that you're cooking up within it? Okay. So our Zinc is a incubator that is pre-team, pre-idea, and it's mission-based. Right. So hang on a sec. So pre-team, pre-idea. So individuals join the program without necessarily knowing what business they want to form, who they want to form it with? Exactly. All the people that are on the program just have a drive towards this mission. Okay. And what's the mission? This year's mission is to create businesses that help women and young girls with their mental and emotional health. Mm, And something you hear a lot is that we all have mental health. It's not something which has to be put off in a separate bucket. What's something you've learned about mental health along the way, something that you wouldn't have thought before? I have learned so much about mental health. And I think what you've just said there about everyone having mental health is a real shift in the way of looking. So there are some quite shocking statistics uh, that we've encountered along the way. One of those being that nine out of 10, 14-year-old girls don't like the way that they look. That's amazing. Well... And quite upsetting. It's an incredibly sobering thought, isn't it? Um, In response to some of these problems worth solving, what are you cooking up and why? And where where are you up to? What can you tell us? Okay, so um, me and my co-founder, Amy became really, really fascinated by communication, 
how communication and social skills can enable us to offload our problems and therefore improve our mental health. Uh, we started to play around with where people learn their um, their social skills. We found out actually it was at home. A lot of the time it used to be around the kitchen table. Yep. Uh, hence, we are called Project Kitchen Table. And what we're trying to do is to use technology to replicate the benefits experienced of sitting around the kitchen table um, using technology, using voice and hopefully using chatbots. OK, so say a bit more, because for lots of uh, parents or I guess children listening, they will say, well, the one thing that's banned at the kitchen table is any form of tech and turn your phone off and turn the telly off. And, and yet here is Sophie telling us that it might be uh, a solution, not a cause of the problem. So tell us a bit more. What's your theory? I think I really want to change the way that we're, we're using technology. I think technology is a fantastic enabler, but we might not be putting it forward at the moment. It may not have been created um, for all those different types of benefits. And now we're seeing the rise of these in-home assistants, Google Home, Amazon Alexa, and actually how can we use that new technology in a very responsible way that will really improve people's lives. Excellent. So I want to talk more about that with Jacqueline uh, shortly. Uh, just tell me a little bit more about what you're hoping to see with Project Kitchen Table, or is it a bit too soon? What's an example of how it might look in practice? Have you got a thought? So I think that is all still under wraps at the moment. We are playing with loads and loads of different ideas. Uh, voice is definitely very key. We're playing with this idea of having an extended member of the family, mm. potentially characterised as a pet. Who knows? Startup life, things are constantly changing. Um, but we want to reconnect families. We want to teach them new skills. And we just want to enable uh, better communication between them. Excellent. I think it's absolutely fascinating. And goodness knows uh, what you can cook up in that mix. Um, let me introduce our second guest today, Jacqueline de Rojas. Welcome, Jacqueline. Hello. And thank you for having me. It's lovely to sit down uh, in the same space as you. We often cross paths in the world. You are uh, formidably hardworking. You're the president of Tech UK. Uh, in 2015, you were voted the most influential woman in the UK IT scene. And you've just been awarded a CBE in the Queen's Honours. Huge congratulations on that. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to take you right back, though, as I do with all of our guests on the lens, to your very first job. So where was that? What was that? Yeah, it's interesting. I could look at that in two ways. I think... Um, the first way I would look at that is that I gave myself the label of survivor when I was probably age four. And the reason for that is that I grew up in a very violent home. My mother had a black eye every week. And then rolled forward another until I was age eight, actually. And my mother remarried um, into a worse situation. So it wasn't until the age of 16 that I got myself into a place where I was a strong and confident young woman. And that was because my stepfather got hold of my O-level results envelope, GCSEs today, and said, what are these? And I said, those are my results. So he opened the letter and said, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to show me up? And I'd got A's and predominantly A's, actually. And it was at that point, it was a fork in the road for me, which said, OK, I could either 
be like you, go undercover, remain invisible, which is what I'd done my whole life. Or I could show you how amazing I could be. And I took that that road of I'm going to show you how amazing I can be. And, and that's what drives me, that fear of failure, that you know, what can I do with life? Can I look for the miracle? So that's why I say that was my first job. Yes. And at that point, when he said, are you trying to show me up by excelling, by being remarkable? Were you on your own? Or was there someone at that point that you could turn to for support for for, for, a, for a, a listening ear? I found my my safety net at school. It was a Catholic school. Um, I was the only mixed-race child in the school with my brother, so I'm half Chinese and half English. And that's quite tricky. My surname was Yu, Jacqueline Yu, um, and so there were, you know, interminable jokes. So the whole bullying thing came into play then as well. But again, you know, the survivor instinct says, you know, do or die. And so, you know, you, you for me, I took the higher road and I decided I was going to prevail. So it was, it's quite an interesting mindset then to find yourself looking down, you know, your future and saying, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I really wanted to be a newscaster on the BBC. I yes. thought it would be so exciting. I was going to check this because I'd read you wanted to be presenting the, presenting the news. Why did you want to do that? Because I thought, you know... Declaring something like war or even peace would be the most amazing thing and it would make a difference, I think. And I and I loved languages, which is what I studied at university. I chose to go to a university in Germany, which I think I did that to get as far away from structure or unstructure, I should say, home life as I could. And I did my degree in Germany uh, yes. in business, uh, European business and languages. Yeah, so again, almost by accident, I suppose. Entirely. Yeah. Now, um, you've been very open about some of the challenges you've faced, and in particular, a decision you took to leave a company that refused, I can hardly believe um, what I'm reading here, but refused to have women on their leadership team. Yes. Was it as crude as that in terms of that company's position? And what happened? Well, I had a very uh, strong career. It was a great training ground, and I learned a lot from this business. But when it came to the country leadership position, I was up for, I put myself forward for the position against um, a man. And I was running 20 times the size of business that he was running. I had 20 times the number of people and he got the job. And I did ask for feedback and they did say, Jacqueline, we simply don't put women on the leadership team. That feedback was given to you, that outrageous feedback was given to you internally and privately. Clearly no company would say that today. Do you ever suspect that any companies, even in 2018, would think it? I do think that. I think, again, I agree, it's gone a little bit underground, I'm sure. Do I think, though, that mindsets are shifting around how diversity can create better business outcomes? I definitely think the needle is shifting in that direction because the markets we serve are so diverse. We have to have a diverse workforce. So common sense prevails, I think. But I do think people are sometimes conditioned by their own upbringings, as we all are. And we have unconscious bias, conscious bias as well sometimes, but a lot of unconscious bias, which prevents diversity often. And when you're looking out at an audience and you're speaking about the business benefits of diversity, you must sometimes think, look, I'm preaching to the choir here. So my question, Jacqueline, is who doesn't 
get it? Where are the battles still to be fought? Uh, Where would you go? Well, I think I'd have to say fish rots from the head down. We have to go right to the top of businesses. We need more diversity at the top of businesses. That's not just gender, by the way. You were talking about mental health earlier. And actually, I do think that we need more people who understand not just the obviously uh, disabling issues that stop people working well in businesses, but the things that you can't see that stop people being as able in terms of people in, in our industry. Mm. And, I, and I suspect that there is still a stigma about speaking openly about one's own mental health challenges. Yes, of course. And it helps when people like Prince Harry talk about it in such uh, transparent terms. We have to make sure that it's socially acceptable to have those conversations out loud. Yeah. Um, in very practical terms, a lot of um, tech um, technology firms would look at their corporate photo and say, look, we have an identity, we have a, a diversity issue. In practical terms, what do you see them doing about it? Uh, what works and what, frankly, is a bit of a waste of time might be window dressing? It depends on the business. But actually, I think it's the small things that make the biggest of differences. Those two millimetre shifts completely change outcomes um, for businesses. So I like to see job descriptions completely changed from software engineer to problem solver. That's really smart because it lands a message with a completely different demographic. I think it's really important to have someone in the business who wakes up in the morning and worries about diversity so that you've got that conversation going on as part of the cultural DNA. Because let's face it, if the culture doesn't shift, it doesn't matter how great the plan is for diversity, if the culture isn't inclusive and inviting and sustains a diverse environment, it's not going to sustain itself. And I think that piece where you have flexible working, the idea that work is not a place, it's where you are, is really important as we need to broaden the talent pool across the industry. We're simply creating more jobs than we can fill. And thank goodness that's creating some kind of pressure for more diversity as well. It it, it certainly is. And that's why it's so good to get some practical techniques. Uh, Well, Jacqueline, thank you. You've been listening to um, Sophie's story. Um, Do you have a question for Sophie? It's great to actually get you sitting next to each other. Yes, it is. And I'm really interested in what you're doing and the problem you're solving in terms of mental health and well-being. My question is, how will you measure what success looks like for you? So this is a, this is a great question and actually one we're asking ourselves quite a lot because when you look at the statistics for mental health, it looks like illnesses such as depression are on the rise, but we're unsure if they're actually on the rise or if the conversation is just open and people are willing to talk about it now. So that's definitely something we're still considering. And as the conversation among communities and among um, the general public changes, um, I'm sure we'll see many shifts across how we're measuring mental health. I think that's really interesting because mental health has so many nuances to it. And I don't know about you, but I met a young woman, for example, who worked for me many years ago. And she took a career break of eight years. And after eight years, she said, I need to come back into the industry. I've, I've got to 
do something. I've got to finish it. And she wanted to come back and she said, I think I'm going to come back as a PA though because I don't really think anyone's going to value my skills since I've been out of the industry for eight years. And I was absolutely horrified that she would think that. But that's where her confidence level had gone. And her mental health actually could be associated with that. So after two mentoring sessions with her and putting her in front of three of my people in my network, she took about a week after that to get her mojo back. And she's back in the saddle and she's absolutely flying. And it's just small interventions somehow that maybe could also be automated in terms of putting opportunities in front of people that wouldn't necessarily have been there had they been looking for them themselves. 100%. And I think that's one of the reasons I say what we're trying to build is this therapeutic assistant is we know that the NHS is incredibly stretched when it comes to providing therapy but we also know how powerful that can be we know how powerful coaching can be but also that's an expensive service so how can we use technology to get these tools these techniques out to a wider group of people to help as many people as possible yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating combination isn't it Sophie a question for Jacqueline my question would be did you have a plan did you know this was the path you were going to take? And when you decided to make a change, was it very conscious or did it kind of fall on to you? I didn't have a plan, but I knew I would not only survive, but I would thrive. And the reason for that was I wanted my family, my children, not ever to be in the situation that I was in in my early career and my early home life. So I was driven and I was driven by fear of failure more than anything. And what happened to me in my early technology career was that I'm going to admit that I was that scary boss lady. I was the alphazilla that metaphorically ate razor blades for breakfast. And I looked like an angry feminist banging my head against the glass ceiling, not because I was a woman in a man's world, but I was a woman trying to be a man in a man's world. And my own self-limiting belief was that you had to be a man to make it. And that simply wasn't true. So from a mindset of not worthy to worth it, and from management to leadership, you know, I really wanted to be the kind of woman that makes other women want to up their game. That was the switch for me. Mm. And was that a steady realisation or was there an inflection point, a turning point, something that cause that change of mindset? I realised when I was in a leadership position that I was in a position of responsibility and influence and that I was a role model whether I chose to be or not. And I guess going back to Sophie's question, a question that future leaders might ask themselves is to what extent were you targeting, chairing, being president, being on the board of things and to what extent did that just happen as a byproduct of the great work that you were doing? How important was it to have that in your mind? You know, what's really interesting is that there is something around karma, I believe, which is if you have values that you live by and you leverage those values in the business that you're in, positive outcomes happen all the time and incremental steps just keep coming and accelerating 
And I could say that opportunities just came my way, but actually, I think I created those opportunities for myself because I did believe in strong leadership that was authentic. And I think I put myself in positions where one plus one equals 11. And I simply stepped into the light from the shadow. Let's go right to the core of what Sophie is doing at the moment, Jacqueline. How do you feel about this idea that actually technology could improve our mental health as a nation, as a species, given how many people are concerned about the negative effects it has? Where where are you both on that? Because actually, Sophie, I'm very conscious that you're not, um, you know, rampantly optimistic about all facets of technology. So I'd like to know what concerns you both and, and where you see the points of light. Jacqueline. Well, my mother, for example, has um, Alzheimer's and dementia, and she completely missed the keyboard generation. But she's quite happy to shout at Alexa and say, turn on Radio 4, or what is the time? And she can ask Alexa 24 times every half hour, and Alexa doesn't get upset. Whereas humanity does get upset. And I would say for people like that, for my mother that makes a difference, that she gets a response. And it's a, you know, it's an elegant response, actually. OK, well, call me a terrible old sceptic, but does that open the door to some families around the world saying, actually, I don't need to be with mum or dad um, because Alexa will be there? Um, I, your story is heartwarming. For, for, for others, it may have slightly more negative consequences. I don't think it's black or white. I don't think you have to, you know, not be there or always be there. You can't always be there. That's just not life. As a balanced approach, I think having some some responsive capability there when you're not there is remarkable in terms of progress. And actually, I embrace it. Sophie, let's reflect a bit more on this idea that technology will improve our mental health. So I do believe that technology will be an amazing enabler to improve our mental health. But I think actually we're moving towards this time where people are thinking more about the consequences of the technology that they're creating. And that's one of the reasons that I think Zinc is so fantastic, is that we're all building businesses that are having that positive impact. We're mission-led and we're trying to kind of change negative conversations. We're trying to change the negative outcomes and flip them on their head to some positives. And Jacqueline, when you hear... Um, zinc being explained, Sophie's ambition being explained. Is there a sense that in years gone by, someone might have said, look, that solving social problems is what governments do, is what charities do. Has it always been what business does? Or is there something changing here? I'm going to make a, a bigger point first, which is the cavalry isn't coming. So we all have to play our part. And the idea that some higher thing, whether it's government or a charity or a or something else, a, a planet-sized business like Facebook or Google is going to solve it for us? The answer is no. We all have to make those differences ourselves. So I do think that social change is going to come from groups of people, communities who come together in whatever form to fix them. So, And, and I see that coming more and more as we move forward because we have got companies the size of planets now there are two ends of the spectrum. 
mindfulness in how you use social media. So maybe an alert, for example, that says, do you know you've been on Facebook for two hours and now it's time for a break? So that's one end. The other end is Uber regulation, which says, right, the government's going to step in and sort it out. But actually, what I think is going to happen is something powered maybe by open standards, maybe blockchain-type technology, where democratisation of the internet is going to come back into the hands of no particular owner. So the example would be GPS is not owned by anybody, but used by everybody. And that's why it works. And I think we will see blockchain taking over a big part of that democratisation. And I'm excited about that. OK, so that is a big, democratised, very devolved uh, view of how the future might look. Let's not let these big tech companies off the hook just yet. I'm going to ask you a very specific question about the UK. And within Tech UK, you have um, some very, very powerful members. Um, how engaged do you think some of those very big tech companies, I'm particularly thinking of the Facebooks, the Twitters, the Googles, the Microsoft, to what extent are they engaged in their communities in making this country a better place? How connected are they? I think Facebook, for example, are making some big moves to change the way your feed looks on Facebook. That was announced recently. I think they could be doing other things. And, and we talked before about two millimetre differences making the biggest outcomes. Yeah, how do you see, Sophie, how do you see these very, very big tech companies? What would you like to see them doing more of? Anything about their behaviour concern you? I think that all of these companies, when they started, I, I agree with you, Jacqueline, that they started because they thought they were making a really positive difference. So I think it's great that the conversation has moved towards us giving them more responsibility, us being able to raise our voices for the concerns that we have around these large businesses. But I don't think that they set out to be um, negative in the first place. Mm. And do you think if they are, because of those consequences that you've hinted at, uh, causing negative things to happen, to what extent are they responsible for doing something about it? So I think that for every negative that they've caused... They've also caused a, a really big positive. You take Facebook, for an example. Mm -hmm. The fact that we can connect with people from all over the world. We've got a new way of creating online communities to connect kind of edges of people that would have been very isolated before can now find similar people. They can find their tribe online. Fantastic win. Yeah, and to your earlier point about the cavalry not coming necessarily, Jacqueline, it's about joining together these very large and small companies, I suspect. I think it is because we have seen these businesses being used to both engage and enrage. And we have to also be careful how, for example, if someone says something controversial on Twitter or something like that, that everyone is appalled by. And then we metaphorically stone them to death online that's also unacceptable, mm. in my opinion. Mm. And so we do have to find a way to create, how shall I put it, tribal elders. Yes. Yes, or well... Or the equivalent online. Yeah, and we should remind ourselves that you should be allowed to appall people. Yes. You know, so... Um, we talk a lot about, or one hears a lot about tech for good, so I just love one 
small or large example from each of you about something that's really getting your mind working outside your current role, perhaps something you've seen, could be a whole area, because I want people to be listening to the lens thinking, actually, technology isn't going to drag us off a cliff and actually can be used to make the world a better place. Jacqueline, you're nodding. I bet you've seen many, many examples. <laughs> I have, and I am completely enthralled by the idea that we can use 3D printing to print human organs and veins and for me, the ability to use that type of technology to improve quality of life and health, I think that's amazing. Yes, excellent. Sophie, what, what inspires you? What do you see? So I think there are some incredible examples of amazing people doing fantastic things. But what has got me really excited at the moment is open banking. Mm-hmm. doesn't sound very sexy, really. So this is giving your bank permission to let other organisations plug into your finances. Have I described that right? Yes, yes. But what really excites me there is that it's going to create a whole range of products that are going to enable people to be more financially independent, understand what is happening with their money more. We're going to see a whole new ecosystem of fintech companies, of banks, of maybe other companies being able to learn from our financial moves. And also we can use that same technology to service citizens online as well from a public sector perspective and services that the public sector offers because with austerity... Frankly, the only state we can afford is probably a smarter state. Yeah, it's fascinating. I want to have more time to discuss it. I want to finish by asking each of you uh, for a piece of advice, specifically, uh, firstly from you, Sophie. Jacqueline is uh, meeting the heads of some of our biggest technology firms. Um, What would you encourage her to say to them? And by the way, I ought to say, Jacqueline, I am aware that Tech UK has smaller and larger members, but particularly for those very large, powerful companies. I really, I would really like to encourage them to look at the extreme, extreme end of their consumers. That's what we do a lot with startups um, in, in what we're doing at Zinc is looking at the extreme users, seeing what difference we can make in their lives, because hopefully... Any difference we make there feeds into the masses. And actually, technology is enabling us to become more and more personalised to that individual person. And it would be fantastic if we could leverage that to make huge change for smaller segments of society rather than minor change for the masses. Yeah, here, here. Um, Jacqueline, Sophie is at the beginning of what I think is going to be an extraordinary entrepreneurial journey. A piece of advice. For me, it would be innovation lives on the fringes and creativity is born in smaller companies in the heads of individuals. And I love the idea of, you know, why get a job when you can create one? And all of these ideas come together eventually to feed into bigger impact. So I would keep innovating and keep creating in small communities because that's where you have the ability to solve problems worth solving. 
Well, your ideas meet in the middle, don't they, around those edges, those fringes. And when you think about how you both came into technology, it was from the edge, and, uh, and, and thank goodness you did. So I'm very grateful to you both. Thank you to both of my guests, Jacqueline de Rojas and Sophie Hebditch. Thank you. That was The Lens, hosted by me, Holly Barrett. If you like what you heard, leave us a review and subscribe in iTunes, and you'll get the latest episodes as soon as they drop. The Lens is a business in the community program supported by Fujitsu. Today's show is produced and directed by Chris Cartwright with production management by Charlie Gibb. Music and editing by Adam Smythe. Our executive producer is Sergio Lopez. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.